This podcast does not constitute medical advice. All changes surrounding medications, diet and exercise should be made in consultation with a professional who can assess your unique health circumstances. Welcome to the Rheumatoid Solutions Podcast with Clint Patterson, helping you to live an easier, healthier, and happier life. So there's a lot of questions coming in at the moment around the COVID vaccine and whether or not there are any contraindications when you have inflammatory arthritis, whether or not you should get the vaccine if you're on immunosuppressant drugs, or whether or not it's okay. And so to answer the questions like those, I've invited a very special friend of our podcast back onto the episode today, Dr. George Munoz, who's a rheumatologist from the oasisinstitute.com. Welcome back, Dr. George Munoz. Thank you, Clint. Happy New Year to you and all our listeners, and uh, great to be back. And thank you for doing this on your weekend. It's five o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday. So you've very generously given us some of your time to answer some of these questions, which keep coming in because there's a lot of concern around whether or not we should or shouldn't get this COVID vaccine. And in fact, what is this vaccine? And so why don't we start with what we know so far and you can help us understand potentially um, what vaccines are sort of on the, on the agenda at the moment, and um, at what stage are they being rolled out? So that, that's about 50 questions <laughs> that I'll try to, to, to really make understandable. And uh, I was told that if we can explain things during an elevator ride simply, then we actually understand them. And, you know, it, it, it's fascinating what's happened here. I, I want to um, recommend uh, the COVID tracker as a uh, source for people to look at from the New York Times that's tracking all the vaccines uh, worldwide. So that's a good trusted source. But to, to answer your question, Clint, uh, we have three vaccines right now that have been approved with you know, several hundred in the pipeline. So th- these are a massive topic. Uh, I'm gonna stick with the two mRNA vaccines first. And so I'll, I'll, break, I'll break this down. Right, uh, we've su- developed vaccines on heralded pace. Mm. Uh, usually they take four, five, seven, ten years to develop. So the leveraging of resources and technology and doing phase trials simultaneously instead of one at a time is how is part of the reason uh, and also the monetary uh, support uh, globally has been uh, the reason we've been able to develop these uh, vaccines at such a fast pace. Okay, so I wanted to say that. We have several category of vaccines for our listeners and patients on uh, people to understand and physicians. And uh, one of them, one of the new classes, which has never been really utilized in clinical medicine before is the mRNA uh, vaccine type, of which there are several. 
we have also a, a vaccine that's utilizing a, an, a, a um, vector, uh, another virus, an adenovirus, which is really uh, a virus for the common cold that has been broken down uh, and its assemblage and, and materials removed and replaced with DNA to form uh, mRNA coding for the spike protein. So that's one, another class of uh, a vaccine. And, you know, I'm going to stick with these two for now, but one is able to go to a COVID tracker and uh, look at some of these other uh, viruses that are available, antiviral agents, vaccines, and the uh, two mRNA vaccines that currently have been released here in the United States and are available under the Emergency Authorization Act, basically uh, has allowed the release of a drug, the vaccine, to be uh, accelerated in use, even though we don't have all the information due to the severity of the pandemic. So people need to understand this. mRNA is, stands for messenger RNA. Um, it's a message of the nucleic acid DNA material that was uh, constructed to sequence the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-19 viron, okay? That virus, this virus, has uh, on its outer shells uh, protein spikes that, it, that the virus uses it to attach to human cells to gain entry into the cells. So it became a natural target to develop vaccines that would stimulate the person's immune system and attack the target, in this case, the spike protein, and create a immunologic response of various types. The spike protein was um, uh, visualized by special techniques, including sequencing, and getting the genetic code for the virus, for the virion. And from there, the spike proteins were actually synthesized um, based on the sequence. And something very uh, astounding was done to create uh, mutations or changes in the code for the spike proteins, but yet so that these spike proteins are not active but they have the three-dimensional configuration of the natural uh, SARS-CoV-2 spike protein for which the mRNA was then uh, created by retro-sequencing. And we now have the message of RNA, ribonucleotide proteins, uh, amino acids, sugars that code for that protein, and it was wrapped in little fat layers, which are called micelles. And that was done for stability because 
RNA is not stable. It won't like hang out. It'll degrade. And so they put them in little fat packets for transport into the cell and to create the uh, basics for the uh, vaccine. Okay. And the, the fatty envelope, uh, which is in the vaccine, both the um, the Pfizer uh, vaccine as well as the Moderna vaccine are then injected intramuscularly and um, they stimulate an immune response, creating, in some cases, symptoms similar to uh, COVID or the flu or a viral infection, which could be some local mild pain at the site of the injection because it is an intramuscular shot. People may get some fatigue, fever, headache, tiredness. These are some of the most common side effects. And also with the uh, Pfizer uh, vaccine, um, they had to put some other chemicals to stabilize the vaccine so that uh, when it's given, it, it stays uh, fixated and and able to work. And some people, rarely, very rarely, some people can have a reaction to uh, the vaccine. It's very rare, thank goodness. And it may be seen in people who have a highly allergic backgrounds. But again, this becomes a discussion of risk benefit because the vast majority of people do not have this. And um, the vast majority of people are able to successfully be vaccinated without issue. So that's how the mRNA viruses are constructed, you know, and I'm not getting into unnecessary detail because there's a lot more detail. There's handling issues in terms of temperature and, and differences between the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. but. Um, the third vaccine, which is the vector using the adenovirus, the common cold virus with DNA, that is the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, is a similar concept, but it's not using mRNA directly. It's using DNA, which is the original message, again, for the spike protein to be injected into a person and allow their cells to then create the mRNA for the spike protein and then create the spike protein for which the person's immune system recognizes as foreign and then to begin an immune response to, for protection. Uh, these viruses, in most cases, you know, don't lead to significant death. The problem is that we have a pandemic with millions of cases now, and it's a numbers game of a small percentage that begins to overrun the capability of medical systems. And this is why we're doing this. Um, so we, we are looking then at these three vaccines as the uh, currently approved uh, vaccines in the EU, Great Britain, uh, the United States, the FDA, and there are other vaccines. Um, there is a, a Chinese vaccine 
There is a Russian vaccine, which interestingly is, is named Sputnik V, um, reminding us, uh, you know, of, of your uh, listeners who are of my generation and older will remember the Sputnik uh, spacecraft were part of the original Race to the Moon uh, Russian uh, spacecraft. And so we have a uh, recrudescence of that concept of, you know, this is a race to develop uh, therapies for this global pandemic from um, multinational, uh, international, and uh, many research uh, camps and, and, and private and and uh, national uh, state-sponsored um, organizations. So I'll stop there and, and see if you have any questions at that point. Yeah, thank you. Well, first thing that, that, that I'm sort of observing is just the level of complexity and the level of amazing development that, that has occurred in the last less than 12 months since this has, uh, this has hit. And what I'm picking up from you is that this is some, something uh, absolutely extraordinary that has been achieved to be able to come up with a vaccine in this amount of time. Word on the street is that it normally takes like 10 years to develop a vaccine like this. And I see that you're nodding your head. So this has been obviously fast-tracked, as you said, with all the money and all of the interest and all of the resources developed uh, or allocated to this task. So thank you for all that background. And some people um, are now going to be wondering, well, what are, what are the considerations then? Uh, it does sound like, uh, you know, they've come a long way. It looks like vaccines are coming at us. And uh, this is something that um, uh, we, should be, we should be considering because we don't want to obviously get the virus if we haven't had this already. And uh, what considerations need to be um, uh, looked at when people are thinking about getting the vaccine? So, you know, these are considerations that I hear from my patients. And then, you know, the physicians are going to have uh, considerations on the medical side. So let's start with the user, patient, listener, uh, general person who will start with our inflammatory patients, since this is our, our main audience uh, today. And let's start with the fact that we have been vaccinating our autoimmune patients uh, for quite a while now for different uh, conditions, for example, shingles, uh, regular flu, uh, pneumococcal pneumonia. So the concept of vaccinating our autoimmune patients, especially if they're going to begin uh, biologic therapies and advanced immunosuppressive therapies, this is not new. I, I think a, one of the main considerations with the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine is, number one, we've never had an mRNA vaccine ever. So this is first in class. And if we have a first in class in anything, people uh, will say, well, is it safe? Is it okay for me to take, uh, if I'm on autoimmune uh, medications, immunosuppressive therapy? Is it safe for me to take, if I'm on steroids, how will it interact with my autoimmune condition? I think those are four major areas. And, you know, we've had some guidance or commentary, I prefer to call it commentary, with preliminary guidance 
on some of these questions. And I will tell you that to date, we have no data on the safety or efficacy in specific autoimmune patients using the mRNA or the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine in large numbers. We just don't have it. What we have are phase one and phase two studies and phase three studies, which, which means that immunogenicity was tested, meaning do the vaccines cause an immune response for protection? And the answer is yes. Do they look generally safe uh, in phase one? And the answer was yes. But these were populations that were not autoimmune patients. They were excluded. And they weren't excluded due to concern of side effects of the autoimmune patients. They were excluded because this is a more complex population on the drugs that we've just talked about that might affect the interpretation of the data of their effectiveness for the general population. Okay, so I want to be crystal clear there. They weren't created or, or, or our autoimmune patients were not eliminated from the study out of fear that something bad was going to happen, either in side effects or in effectiveness, but they didn't want to take the chance and delay the rollout. Okay, I'm just telling you like how I see it. That's how I see it. Now. We have information on autoimmune patients with vaccines from the vaccination um, practices that I've mentioned to you that are common. The second, and what I'd like to say with that is, is that generally speaking, there are no significant issues in this regard. What we do know from our population of patients and on immunosuppressives is that no live attenuated viruses should be used in our patient populations. And the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines are not live attenuated viruses. So therefore, from that perspective, they're safe to use. I hope that is a major point that is clarified to our list, for our listeners and for physicians, because it can this can be all be very confusing. Mm. The adenovirus, which I spoke to you as the vector, the benign vector, um, a vector simply means a tool for infection that is part of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, is a common cold virus, not a SARS inactivated virus. And the machinery for duplication of the adenovirus has been eliminated. The only thing in it is the DNA for the spike protein to be translated and made into messenger RNA in the, in the person, in the individual who gets vaccinated, and then make the spike protein to create the immune response. So this is not a live attenuated virus in the classic sense. 
So as far as side effects, I've already alluded to them. They are the usual mild side effects that can happen with any vaccine or with any viral infection. And I'll just list them again. You can have an injection site uh, reaction or tenderness that that can be mild to moderate, lasting uh, hours to a few days. Generally not a big deal. Um, You can have fatigue. You can have uh, low-grade fever. You can feel tired. You can feel achy, just like a viral infection. You can have a headache. And most of the time, these symptoms are mild and sometimes moderate. These vaccines require two shots, a boost, an initial, and a booster mm-hmm. three to four weeks uh, after. And the immune response tends to be stronger with the second vaccine, the booster, because your body now has been primed. And we want this reaction so that if you come in contact with COVID-19, you, do, you have an immune response against the virus to attenuate. Now, what does it look like? How effective are they? That, that, that's a question I would know. What, you know. Here's some good news. It looks like for the two mRNA viruses, the uh, Pfizer and the Moderna, the effectiveness is in the 94 to 95%, very high, very high. So we're really happy about that. What is the number that is considered necessary in order for a vaccine uh, to be considered effective for COVID-19? The percentage is actually much lower. It's 50%. And so the reason I tell you that is to then um, pivot to the Oxford uh, AstraZeneca vaccine, whose currently stated effectiveness efficacy is lower than the Pfizer and the Moderna. It's in the 60 to 70% range. And initial thoughts are that uh, if the initial dose is actually lower, if the initial vaccine was lower, when the full dose is given on the second, the effectiveness in the study uh, came up to 90%. This has to be determined if this is true or simply a sampling error. But right now we're using the 60 to 70% effectiveness for the Oxford adenovirus uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. So I'll pause there and Mm. and see if if you have any questions or need any clarification there. Yeah. First response is the information is sensational, and I know you're just reporting on the commentary, but uh, this is very, very reassuring uh, information I've never heard before. Uh, So thank you very much. This is brilliant. And I've made some notes as we've gone here that uh, to so that you can then uh, give me a correction to my understanding. But because people with autoimmune conditions, including inflammatory arthritis, have been vaccinated before for other viruses successfully, we've got that history and can feel good about that this isn't the first time at the rodeo for that particular situation. Uh, None of the three options that are leading the 
the, the run at the moment are live vaccines. So that's a crucial point um, that you've made. So that's very reassuring as well. And we've learned that um, in each of them, there's a there's a there's there's two shots. There's one, and then there is a booster uh, some weeks later. And uh, it's typical when they're intramuscularly uh, injected to have some um, some discomfort at that site, and even to experience some of the symptoms of the of the uh, virus itself um, in response, as your body basically responds and does what it needs to do to acclimatize to the to that intervention to make it resistant to that to that virus. So. All of this sounds excellent, and um, are we on track? Have I understood correctly? You are on track, and and you have uh, confirmed uh, uh, full access, accession of the information thus far. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, now, one nuance here is that you mentioned that often people, before they go on biologic drugs, are given these uh, vaccinations in preparation for. What about if people are already on biologic drugs? And I don't, I know there's no data. So how could you comment on that scenario? So we didn't do our usual disclaimer that we start usually start our sessions, which is again, this is uh, uh, my general commentary, uh, some opinion, uh, some guidance that I'm passing on from uh, medical societies, including uh, the, the American College of Rheumatology, rheumatology.org, www.rheumatology.org, and uh, some common sense. Yeah. Common sense is good. And, um, and also um, some guidance um, that we've been utilizing protocols thus far in uh, our patient population, which is uh, obviously complex, uh, immunocompromised, and to different degrees, depending on their uh, medication uh, cocktail, and also the presence or absence of prednisone, uh, 10 milligrams and above. So let let me start with this. that the that rheumatology.org, the American College of Rheumatology, published uh, some general guidance in July of 2020, and basically, the information um, based is that uh, number one, we're not stopping medications uh, during the pandemic. If you're on medications, don't stop them, and you only stop them if um, there are signs and symptoms of COVID. You'll speak with your physician. You'll make a joint decision. You get tested. And based on uh, these results, um, a decision can be made um, to temporarily halt therapy for a period of time until it is safe to resume. And this is a question of joint deci- shared decision-making between uh, patients and their physicians. So migrating from that scenario to the vaccine, what do we do for in, in terms of uh, medications and uh, when to vaccinate, if and when to vaccinate? So based on what I've told you, okay, I hope that people are hearing me because I've really come full circle on this vaccination issue 
I, I want people to know. I first of all, I want to let you know, all of you, that um, I have uh, gone ahead and uh, received the vaccine. I got the Pfizer vaccine uh, five days ago. Okay, and I thought it was important because I'm leading my patients, and I want to I want to show my patients that you know, this is best practice, uh, pretty much. And that everybody has individual decision-making to do with their physician. And it's always comes down to, uh, an assessment of risk benefit of, of not doing it versus co- having COVID. Um, and the risk benefit is, is affected by your medical regimen and your condition, your age, your comorbidities and prednisone separately. So typically for the flu vaccine, for example, we have new data, relatively new data, that suggests that if you get the flu vaccine, you should hold methotrexate for two weeks after your flu vaccine so that it works. We don't have the data for the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines. My personal view on this for which we don't have the data is that i will recommend my patients who are taking methotrexate to hold their methotrexate for two weeks if they are stable after they receive the uh, covid vaccine so that's a this is a a specific scenario where I am translating from data we have on the flu vaccine about efficacy, not side effects of the vaccine, so that the vaccine works. Okay? Yep. Now, um, there doesn't seem to be any reason why, if you're on a biologic at this time, the vaccine should be withheld. There just doesn't seem to be, okay? And again, this is recommending that everybody discuss this with their physician. I will say that people who are at higher risk are going to be people with multiple immunosuppressives and who have organ damage and who have, for example, kidney involvement or lung involvement, uh, who are diabetic. As the as the regular population is, but having prednisone ten milligrams or higher is going to significantly add risk to getting COVID and having a bad outcome. Therefore, you should really strongly move towards the concept of getting the vaccine for the added protection because there is more risk there, and so this becomes an exercise for everyone of listing the comorbidities, the risk factors, and the very low risk of side effect from the vaccine itself. Okay. Well, thank you. And thank you for sharing your personal choice there as well with regards to the vaccine. That's very interesting. And I'm sure you're going to be one of millions that uh, roll this out um, and get vac- vaccinated over the coming months or year. 
And uh, of course, the landscape changes and we're recording this uh, early January 2021. If you're listening or watching this some months from now or years from now, then, you know, um, obviously we're just going off the information or you're going off the information that you have at the time. So thank you for all of that. Uh, I think you've covered just about everything that uh, I wanted to know. Is there anything that uh, you feel that we haven't touched upon? Anything that we've left out? So I would like to just add that here in the States, we've uh, the CDC has a tracker that um, is voluntary to sign up for so that you are monitored post-vaccine for any side effects. I just feel it's part of my civic duty to participate in these types of endeavors. Um, just like I feel it's my civic and professional duty to share this information with you, Clint, your listeners, and my patients, the more information we get, uh, the better our recommendations can become. Autoimmune patient data will start to increase over the next three to six months on utilizing the international trackers. Uh, using the websites, including uh, COVID.com, the ACR's site as well, uh, tracking COVID internationally. And so I, rec- I recommend, you know, that uh, people um, avail themselves of these sources and these resources, trusted resources, to see what's new and how things are developing. Um, And I think that's it for now. Yes. No, thank you very much again, just to reiterate um, how good this information is and and how grateful I am. And I'm sure our uh, audience are for you to share this information. It's it's very hard to find out this level of detail and specifically around inflammatory arthritis and uh, and the medications from any other source. So you really are a a very, very valuable um, resource for us on this podcast. And uh, Dr. Muniz, you're joining us on January the 8th, which will just be in a couple of days from now as we release this podcast, um, in our Rheumatoid Solutions and Rheumatoid Support Group. So if you're not part of those platforms, please come join us and you can ask questions of your unique circumstances to Dr. Muniz on those calls. We treat them like this, like uh, general information based on, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Muniz's opinions, um, but it's very, very valuable. And uh, please come join us. Uh, Go to rheumatoidsolutions.com to sign up and you can uh, join Dr. Munoz and our other guests on a monthly basis. Um, And to speak to Dr. Munoz yourself, if you would like to have him as your rheumatologist, you can go to theoasisinstitute.com where he does do telemedicine consultations and offers a tremendous professional service available for you um, all around the world at the moment. So definitely take the opportunity to contact theoasisinstitute.com. And let me add, Dr. Muniz has just started a podcast and the first episode is, I believe, about to go live. This is so exciting. So if you like this format and you listen to the Rheumatoid Solutions podcast, whether you watch it on YouTube or you listen to it on your your, uh, mobile device, now you can also add to your playlist Dr. Muniz's podcast too. So go to the oasisinstitute.com and find out the details 
And uh, that is just going to be so valuable and another great resource for everyone in our community who are living outstanding lives with inflammatory arthritis. So thank you so much, Dr. Munoz. Thank you, Clint. And thank you for that uh, plug. And uh, uh, this Friday coming, I'll uh, announce to you uh, the official name of the podcast for you and our listeners. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And can I ask your permission to share some outtakes of this episode? Because we had some funny moments trying to get this done. Uh, is that okay if I put it at the end of here? A absolutely. Of absolutely. These are, what should we call them? Rheumatology bloopers? <laughs> yeah, let me think of a name. We, we need it because every time we try to get together, it's like it's the, the everyone comes in to try and uh, create chaos. But I think, you know, we've done well to, to uh, have a wonderful conversation despite the uh, interruptions. Thank you, Clint. Always great to see you and speak with you. And it's always great to see the family. Thank you, George. All right. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Rheumatoid Solutions. If you'd like to get more help to live an easier, healthier, and happier life, visit rheumatoidsolutions.com. Zeus, you got to be a good boy. <laughs> there he is. There he is. And here's Zeus. the little girl. This is Willow. Oh, wow. Zeus and Willow. I love their names. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. It's like having two-year-olds. What's the matter? I got to talk to Clint. <laughs> Okay, I got to talk to Clint. You guys got to go outside. Come on. Unbelievable. I've been getting a lot of questions recently about the COVID vaccine and questions coming in from people, not just around the safety of the vaccine and the different types of vaccine, but especially around the implications if you have inflammatory arthritis and whether there are any reasons to be cautious about getting the COVID vaccine, especially if you are taking immunosuppressant drugs uh, and generally what the guidelines are. And whilst some of the guidelines aren't yet clear, I've invited our very special friend of Rheumatoid Solutions onto the podcast to uh, sing off. Hey, Daddy. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> Daddy, where? I thought we had a good intro too. <laughs> he just I couldn't put up with it. He's just eh, eh, eh. <laughs> You you on your end, me on my end.